Welcome everyone and welcome to the continuation of our series on prayer, Praying the Big Prayers. It was the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar who in 586 BC conquered Judah and in the process utterly destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. The other thing he did is he took into exile uh, the leaders of the city, uh, those who were educated, those who were people of influence. And this was not an unusual thing. It was quite common for a conquering force to take the people of the land that they conquered into exile in order that they would adopt the language and the beliefs and the culture of the conquerors. Now, the assumption behind this is that the culture of the conquerors was obviously superior to the culture of the people who had been conquered. And we understand that because that's part of our Australian history. When the English came to our shores, the expectation was and the assumption was that the Indigenous people would and should, for their own benefit, adopt British culture, wear British clothes, speak English and adopt England's Christian faith. We saw this happen last week. And we looked at the person of Daniel. Daniel was one of those who, along with many others, was taken into exile to be immersed into Babylonian language, Babylonian wisdom and Babylonian culture. But Daniel and his friends refused to abandon their Jewish faith and their practices, even when threatened with death. And generations later, there were still Jews living in exile who had held on to their Jewish faith and held on to their worship of Yahweh of the one true God. Today we come to look at the person of Nehemiah. But to understand him and to understand the significance of the prayer that we'll look at, we must understand the times in which he lived. Now, after destroying Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar died around about 24 years later. And his death marked the decline of the Babylonian Empire. Now, Persia at this stage was rising in power, and by 539 BC, it replaced Babylon as the Middle Eastern superpower. Now, the Persian Empire took on a a rather novel, uh, certainly a very different approach to conquered lands and conquered peoples. It allowed them greater freedom, including freedom for the conquered people to continue practicing their own religious beliefs. And so, in 538 BC... The Persian king, Cyrus, gave permission for Jews who had been exiled initially to Babylon to return to Judah. And some of them took up that opportunity and they rebuilt a temple of some sort. But it remained difficult for the Jewish people. Those who'd returned to Judah and Jerusalem uh, faced opposition and and the walls of the city remained in ruins. It wasn't just difficult for Jews living in Judah. Their faith in Yahweh made them stand out across the empire. And so at times they found themselves the targets um, of opposition. Now we read this in the book of Esther, where the Persian king at this stage was a man called Xerxes. And he issues an edict essentially saying that all the Jews in the Persian kingdom are to be slaughtered and their property is to be confiscated by those who murder them. But again, God intervenes. And this time he uses a Jewish woman. Her name is Esther. And she, for a time such as this, becomes Xerxes' favourite wife. And her and her cousin Mordecai. 
uh, hatch a plan and save the lives of the Jewish people. Now, when Xerxes dies, his son Artaxerxes takes the Persian throne. And it's during his reign that Nehemiah enters our story. Now, we need to understand a little bit about Artaxerxes because he was having a difficult time as king. He had faced major revolts in parts of the empire close to Egypt, just south of Judah. And it was not long after this that the book of Nehemiah commences. Now, when we come to Nehemiah chapter 1, there is so much drama in this opening chapter. If we were to read this um, as someone at the time or somebody who had an understanding of the Babylonian Persian empires, there would be so many questions for us. The first would be, well, who is Nehemiah? Who is it writing these memoirs? What's he doing in Susa, one of the capital cities of Persia? And what's the favour that he's praying for? And who is this man that he's referring to? And so we're going to have Nehemiah chapter 1 read to us. This is the reading from Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him, and keep his commandment. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servant, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the command, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my command, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servant, who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So we find that the person Nehemiah is referring to as this man is actually the king of Persia. Like you understand it, the king of the most powerful nation in the Middle East. He's kind of like a President Trump, but more powerful, or like a President uh, Xi Jinping, but more powerful. Uh, Someone like President Putin, but more powerful. This guy is super powerful. But in Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah just calls him this man. And so who is Nehemiah? Well, we find out he's the man's cupbearer. And you may think, 
Well, whoopee-doo. Nehemiah can hold a cup. Anybody can hold a cup. But that's actually not the case. If you are cup-bearer, you are close to the king. If you are the cup-bearer of the king, you are trusted by the king. And in some historical records, if you are cup-bearer to the king, you are second in the kingdom. Now, that probably wasn't Nehemiah, but you get the point. Nehemiah was an incredibly important and influential position. So why is Nehemiah praying for favor? What does he have in mind? Well, we know that Nehemiah is a man of position and influence. And he's asking God to give him favor from the Middle East's most powerful man. So we know that this is a big prayer. We know that Nehemiah is not going to be asking for two weeks annual leave. We know that he's not going to be asking for a 2.5% pay rise. And so we hurry into chapter 2 to find out what the favour is he's looking for. When we get to chapter 2, it's set four months later. Nehemiah brings wine to the king of Persia. And this is most likely at a festival uh, that the king is holding. Now, the sadness that Nehemiah is feeling for his people is obvious. And the king asks him, Why do you look sad? And I like that Nehemiah writes that at that point, I was very much afraid. And he had two very good reasons to be very much afraid. The first is that you are not meant to look sad in the presence of your king. And you are most certainly not meant to look sad if you are attending a festival and serving at a festival that your king has arranged. You don't want to annoy the king of Persia. You don't want to make the king of Persia angry because generally it's not going to go well for you. But there's a second reason why Nehemiah is perhaps feeling a little afraid at this point because he knows that this is the opportunity that he's been praying for. And so he tells the king, how can I be anything but sad when the city of my ancestors lies in ruins? And then comes the answer to his prayer because the king asks him, what is it that you want? Uh, Nehemiah shoots off perhaps the quickest prayer in the Bible, so quick it doesn't even get written down. And he says to the king, send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Now, if you remember the context of this ask, you will understand how big an ask it is and how big a prayer this was that he was praying for. Nehemiah is asking King Artaxerxes, the same king who has had a truckload of trouble with rebel provinces. He is asking him that he might be able to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, I can imagine uh, Artaxerxes' advisors around going, no, no, not a good idea, a really bad idea, no. But the king says to Nehemiah, yes. Nehemiah has more to ask. He says, may I also have letters of safe passage through down to Judah? And may I also be able to access timber from your forests? And Nehemiah writes down that because the gracious hand of the Lord was upon him, the king granted his requests. Now, I have read and there are countless leadership books based on Nehemiah. He was an extraordinary leader. But today, I want to focus solely on his prayer. And in particular, what can we learn from his prayer? And how can it encourage us in the way in which we pray?
The first point I want to make is that Nehemiah's prayer springs from his relationship with God. This is not a transactional prayer. This is a very personal prayer. Nehemiah prays like a man who knows God. He starts his prayer by using the covenantal name of God. Uh, when Moses approached God and, and says, Who are you? Who? What is your name? Who would I say has sent me? God says, This is my name. I am. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. You may know the name as Yahweh, or when you read it in your Bible, it will be Lord, capitalized. Whatever it is, it's the personal name of God. It's the covenant name of God. And this, how Nehemiah, this is how Nehemiah starts his prayer. He addresses him as Lord. Lord, great and awesome are you. You keep your covenant of love with those who love you and keep your commandments. You see, this is a prayer that springs from Nehemiah's relationship with and his personal knowledge of the covenant-keeping God, the God whose love is unfailing and the God who keeps his promises. And confident in this relationship that he has with God, Nehemiah asks that this great and this awesome God of the universe would listen to his prayer. Now, this is not arrogance on Nehemiah's part. This is simply his confidence in the nature of God. Nehemiah is confident in the nature of God's greatness, that there is nothing too big for God. Taking on the king of Persia, so what? He's just this man. But Nehemiah is also confident in the goodness of God that he is not so insignificant that God would not listen to him or that no matter is so small that God would not be attentive. And this is the amazing thing to believe about our God, that that the God of all creation would pause and be attentive to our prayer. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, how does he start his prayer? He starts with our Father. Because prayer is not transactional. Prayer is relational. It's for this reason that prayer was Nehemiah's first response when he heard the news from his brothers. Because when something big happens, be it good or bad, the first people we talk to about it are those that we are closest to. The brothers bring Nehemiah the report that the city of Jerusalem is in ruins and the people there are in great trouble and in disgrace. And this is terrible news and Nehemiah feels it so deeply and his first response, we're told, is to mourn and to fast and to pray before his God. I think too often my first response to terrible news is to try and make things better. It's my first inclination, I want to fix something. And then if I can't fix it, my second inclination is to find someone to blame because, you know, there's always someone to blame. And sometimes it's only when I get past trying to fix it or trying to blame that I realize that the first thing I should have done is pray. To pray to the one who could actually do something about that. But such is Nehemiah's confidence in his relationship with God. Such is his confidence in God's greatness and in God's goodness. His first response is to pray. I like what the Apostle John writes in 1 John. He says this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, 
we know that we have what we asked of him. I once had a, a pastor when I was a teenager and he described faith as giving as much as we know of ourselves to as much as we know about God. I like that. It worked for me as a teenager. That the expectation of me wasn't to be a, a superstar in religion, to be a, a religious heavyweight, but that faith for me was to be giving as much as I knew of myself to as much as I knew about God. And I think we can apply that to prayer. Because you may not feel like you know as much about God as Nehemiah did. And you may not feel like you have the confidence that the Apostle John did. But don't let that stop you from praying. Just start. Share as much as you know about yourself. Put as much into words in prayer as you can with as much as you know about God. And if it feels hard finding the words to say, then write them down instead. Write a prayer to God. But the big thing is to understand that God invites us into relationship with him and he invites us to pray, to speak with him and to listen to what he will say. Not only does Nehemiah's prayer spring out of his relationship with God, but it's driven by his love for people. The news of Jerusalem brought him to tears because of his love for God's people there. This isn't a prayer that he uttered only once. We're told in Scripture that he prayed it day and night. Day and night he prayed for them. And we see as we read this that he identified with his people and the suffering and the struggle that they were having in Jerusalem. This is not a a them prayer, but this is a we prayer. This is an us prayer. It's not their problem down there. This is our problem, Lord. And at times... We need to allow ourselves to feel the pain of those whom we pray for. I remember some years ago, uh, friends of ours um, praying for them. Their marriage was in huge trouble. And and Kathy and I felt it so strongly. And we did. We prayed for them. And what I sensed that what was lacking in my ability to find the right words to pray was made up for in the intensity with which I prayed for them. Sometimes we need to allow ourselves to feel, to feel the pain of those we pray for. Um, I, I don't cry often. Kathy will verify that. I don't cry often. But I do increasingly find that I cry when I pray for people. When I allow myself to feel the pain or feel what they are experiencing. But what I find is that in allowing myself to feel I remember to pray for them. And I persevere in my prayer for them. I get the sense that the Apostle Paul was very much like Nehemiah in this, that he felt as he prayed. He experienced a sense of love and compassion and concern for those he prayed for. In Philippians chapter 1, which is just one of the many times that Paul prays for people, he says this, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. 
God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Nehemiah's prayer was very much driven by his love for his people. The third thing I want to share is that Nehemiah's prayer is shaped by God's revealed words and works. I said earlier that Nehemiah uses covenant language. And then when we have a look at verse 8 in chapter 1, Nehemiah begins quoting in his prayer passages from both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I love that. As, as Nehemiah is praying to God, he's telling God, this is in your word, Lord, as if God didn't know. Of course God knew. But the point is that Nehemiah knew God's word and he shapes his prayer around God's word. And because he knows God's word, He knows what God has done in the past and he knows the promises of God to his people that still stand. How much more are we able to shape our prayer around God's revealed word, especially around the words and the life of Jesus Christ? Jesus is the greatest revelation of God that we have. He lived the perfect life and his death reveals to us the extent of God's love for us. In the gospel, Jesus reveals to us the perfect will of God and shows us how to live and how to pray. And when we read through all of the New Testament, we come to see how people of faith sought to live and to love like Jesus and how their prayers can become examples for us of how and what to pray for. You see, the scriptures give us words to pray. Sometimes I'm asked, how do I know? How, how can I pray in the will of God? And a very simple answer to that is, well, when you pray God's word, you know. You know that when you pray God's word that you are praying in the will of God. I mentioned some months ago uh, that when we were in lockdown around COVID-19, one of the new rhythms that I built into my life was resuming my memorization of scripture. And that's something I've continued to do. It's been such a great joy to work slowly through the Bible, seeking to memorize as much of it as I can. But the unexpected bonus in memorizing scripture is actually how it's shaped my prayer life. What I have increasingly found is that my memorizing of scripture shapes the way in which I pray and passages that I pray either over myself or as I'm praying for other people, passages come to mind and I'm able to pray them and apply those passages in prayer to those situations. Allow scripture to shape the way in which we pray and the content of what we pray. And I just want to say alongside scripture and working with scripture, the Holy Spirit will also guide us in prayer. Allow him to also lead you in what to pray and how to pray. The fourth thing that I learned from Nehemiah and looking at his prayer And what happened afterwards is that his prayer is accompanied by planning and by action. Praying does not excuse us from action. But remember that he prayed first. He didn't say, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to plan. And when I've got my plans together, I'm going to go to God and say, all right, Lord, here are my plans. Bless my plans. He prayed first. And then he looked for how God would answer that prayer. He waited four months for the opportunity, but he knew what to do. You see, when the king asked him, what is it that you want? Nehemiah doesn't go, oh, I don't really know. I'll give you an email tomorrow and let you know. He knew exactly what he needed. 
He had prepared himself for this moment. You see, prayer, and when we pray it out, it opens our eyes to the opportunities that God presents. If you want to start praying for someone to share faith with, guess what? You will start to see those opportunities. Nehemiah prayed, but he was also prepared for action. And the last thing I just want to draw out of Nehemiah's prayer and his story is that Nehemiah's answered prayer in chapters 1 and 2 is not the end of the story. One answered prayer did not make everything good, either for Nehemiah or for God's people. Nehemiah went to the city, he rebuilt the walls, but he faced opposition at every step, often by the Gentiles who were around him, but also sometimes and most hurtfully from his own people. And in those contexts, God did not fix Nehemiah's situation. He did not remove the trouble from Nehemiah. But as Nehemiah prayed, God gave him the courage and the wisdom to navigate through it. There's a story in Acts chapter 12. The apostle James has been executed by King Herod and the apostle Peter has been arrested and most likely will also face execution. And we're told that the church was earnestly praying for him. Now that prayer was amazingly, miraculously answered. Uh, Paul's chains fell off and then an angel comes and actually leads him out of the prison to freedom. It is an incredible answer to prayer. But opposition and persecution of the church didn't end there. Sometimes we face difficulty. And when that happens, we ask the question, why God? I feel like, God, you've answered my prayer. I feel like you've spoken to me as as I've prayed to you. Why is it still so hard? Sometimes with an answered prayer, there is still the struggle. But the encouragement for me is that sometimes, like Nehemiah, God answers our prayer not by fixing our situation, but by giving us the courage and the wisdom to live through it. Nehemiah is remembered in history for not only rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but for rebuilding the Jewish community. He and a man called Ezra laid a foundation for the Jewish nation, both spiritually and politically, that enabled the Jewish people to maintain their faith and to maintain their identity and their practices during centuries of oppression and centuries of foreign rule. Did he know that that would be the case when he prayed that prayer? Probably not. He could not have imagined the impact that his prayer had on so many people that followed him. And in the same way, we don't know the full extent of our prayers. Sometimes we might find out later what's happened in response to our prayers, but often we do not see the impact that they make on a person or on a situation. But I just want to close by saying our prayers matter. They are such a vital expression of our relationship with God, our faith in him. And they are often the greatest gift that we can give to another person. As we approach November and December, 
as Kathy has already encouraged us today, would you join us in praying for the situation or for the person that God lays upon your heart? And remember, there is nothing so large that God cannot answer it. There is nothing so large that is beyond the, God, the reach of God's greatness. And neither is there anything so small that it is beyond the reach of his goodness. And I trust that today, uh, this story and these words have been an encouragement to you. Bless you.